navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. All right, so we're getting ready to get started. And for those of you joining us uh, for the first time uh, on the roundtable, uh, this is our second episode, which I'm really excited uh, to have going. Uh, and the way the roundtable came about is uh, really grew out of a CLE series I did starting in January for the New York State Academy of Trial Lawyers uh, on how to litigate a personal injury case. It was once a month, a seven part series. And we had about 800, 1,000 P- lawyers uh, tuning in uh, each month. And what was great is that uh, people would uh, communicate through the Q&A and suggest answers uh, and guidance and resources. And we started to build a community. And I said, you know what, this is really cool. Let's do the roundtable as part of the Mentor ESQ podcast, which is a podcast uh, that uh, many of you are listening to right now who are not attending this live. So thanks for joining us. And on this episode of the roundtable, uh, we are going to have some panelists joining us who I'll tell you about in a moment, but we're going to talk construction accident cases. And, um, you know, there's so much that goes into construction accident injury cases that we certainly won't be able to cover it all. Thank you. Many of you suggested topics, questions you had or have. I've reviewed them all. There's a lot of great ones. So if I don't address yours, feel free to reach out to me uh, if it's not answered. After this podcast, my contact info is on the screen, and you can feel free to reach out to our panelists, and we'll make sure you have their contact info as well. But generally, uh, many of you have handled these cases, and maybe some of you haven't. And in a construction accident case, usually what happens is you have a laborer who's injured on the job site. And yes, there's a workers' comp case. That's separate. We're going to be talking about third-party cases, which is when the uh, injured party is the plaintiff, injured during work on a construction site, usually it's a construction site, and um, it falls within the labor law protection. And then they have the right to bring a lawsuit, not against their employer, who may be a subcontractor, but generally these cases are brought against the general contractor and the owner of the site who have liability by statute under the laws. And that is labor law 240 subdivision one, which many of you know is the scaffold law, which is generally a fall of someone, they fall off, scaffold or fall from a height or a ladder, uh, it's falling from a height, or it's an object falling from a height and striking them. Then you have labor law 241 subdivision six, which is when a provision of the industrial code is claimed to be violated. And that's a contributing cause of the accident. And then you have labor law 200, which is really a codification of the general common law negligence standard. So we could have programs on each one of those, but generally that's what's involved. We'll talk about that today. And then the issues that come up in the context of the labor laws in these lawsuits are going to be, does the case qualify and fall within one of these labor laws? Or does it not? Is it a 240 case? Is it a 241.6 case? Is it a 200 case? Uh, many of you ask questions about sole proximate cause. Um, the only defense, if you can establish factually that it falls within a 240 subdivision one case, um, as a plaintiff, it's going to be a win. You're going to get strict liability against the owner and the general contractor, unless the injured party was a sole proximate cause of the accident. Uh, there's countless cases, fact patterns, um, 
you know, the three of us as panelists who will be talking today can can agree or disagree on whether the same exact fat pattern is a sole proximate cause. And ultimately, it's up to an appellate division or court of appeals bench to decide that. Uh, so that's always a tricky issue. We can talk about that. We'll talk about the investigation that goes into this, common mistakes, plaintiffs, defense lawyers uh, come across, and uh, coverage issues. One of our panelists uh, is a coverage expert because uh, many of us have filed a claim, served a notice of claim, only to get a disclaimer. What? There's no coverage for this case? How is that possible? Uh, and then there's indemnity issues of coverage where there's contracts, indemnity, indemnification contracts between the GC and the subcontractor and the owner. And a lot of the time as a plaintiff's lawyer, I've got to wait for everybody to sort out amongst the defendants who's covering, who's responsible. And it helps to know this stuff as a plaintiff's lawyer, the same way that defense lawyers can say, oh, there's a lien against the case. That's not my problem. But ultimately it is because it can affect settlement. Same way as a plaintiff's lawyer, you can't sit back and say, oh, they've got issues with insurance on their end. Let them sort it out. That's their problem. Uh-uh. You need to roll up your sleeves and jump right in it and help sort it out if you want to get your case resolved. So we'll talk about all of that. We'll talk about the need for experts, possibly. We'll talk about mediating these cases, summary judgment motions. We're not going to get to all of it, but we're going to let things fly, see where it goes. So ground rules for everybody today. You'll see a Q&A uh, below. Please put any questions, comments, information you have in the Q&A. Okay. If you have info to share on a topic, share it. If you have a question, post it. Q&A is for everything. We're going to leave the chat uh, for where we're dropping the information and uh, files for you. If you want to chat uh, one or all of the panelists directly, you can also use the chat for that. All right. So what I'd like to do now is kick it off and uh, welcome our panelists uh, for today's episode of the Roundtable. And we're going to bring them in now. And our two panelists uh, who are going to be joining us, uh, who hopefully you will see joining on the screen now. The first one has shown up and I see is Rosa Feeney and I see Michael Mezzacapa. So I welcome you both uh, to the program. And uh, Michael and Rosa are both excellent attorneys. They both have a lot of knowledge in this area. Uh, Michael and I have been adversaries. Uh, he handles defense work in big, big stakes cases. You know, if they're bringing Michael in on your case, you're in trouble. Uh, and uh, Rosa is my go-to person for coverage issues. So I'm going to allow them to introduce themselves uh, and then we'll get going. Uh, Michael, why don't you kick it off? Uh, please uh, introduce yourself to everybody. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate the invite and the opportunity to speak to all of you. Um, I'm an attorney at Calvin. I'm a partner at Calvin Bordeston Ryan. Um, we're a national defense firm. I defend construction accident litigation cases of every kind, uh, fires and explosions, all sorts of premises liability, and a variety of other things. The firm also has a large component of medical malpractice, employment discrimination, directors and officers, liability, uh, other professionals, coverage, and all of those things. We have eight offices across the United States. Um, I generally handle catastrophic cases, but am not adverse to taking some of the small ones either. It's usually that I, I meet Andrew on the catastrophic ones, and he's smiling more at the end of it than I am, um, <laughs> thus his name. Anyway, thank you so much for, for allowing me to join and to share with you some of my thoughts. Great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks so much. Uh, Rosa, please introduce yourself to everybody. Make sure that you unmute yourself because I think I see the mute is on. Yeah, thank you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. I'm so uh, happy to be at the round table. 
Um, yeah, my uh, I've been practicing for about 30 years, which I can't believe, and uh, in insurance coverage. And you know, I handle a variety of insurance coverage matters stemming from construction action litigation to just business issues and um, business interruption and business contracts. I uh, assist my clients uh, often with uh, transactions and how the insurance issues affect the transactions. Um, You know, I do uh, homeowner insurance, auto insurance, life insurance, disability insurance. So I'm sure I've missed something, but I do a large variety of insurance cases. Um, I have been... um, I've had my own firm for 25 years, uh, the Feeney Law Offices, but I am also of counsel to Lewis Joe's, Avalon Navillas. Uh, I do a lot of work with them. And we also do, um, we do the, the insurance company side, but I also work with uh, the policyholder side. Um, you know, we, uh, I, I practice all over New York State. I mean, I'm located out in Suffolk County, but um, I practice in the federal and state courts in the entire entirety of New York. And uh, I also do appeals for insurance coverage matters. So you know, thank you for having me. And I uh, hope we have a good discussion today. All right, great. So what I'd like to do today is sort of address the, the topics and the questions, maybe chronologically. And I think it's really important as a plaintiff, I love speaking to Mike. I love speaking to my other friends that are on the defense side because it really helps me Um, and how to manage a case to understand what goes on on the other side. And I know from Mike and from my friends that are defense attorneys, they like to pick my brain because it's helpful for them uh, to know what's going through uh, the plaintiff's attorney's mind. Uh, It helps them with their defenses or posture and ultimately getting to resolution. I think that, um, and I preach this a lot, that we can be adversaries, but be friends and be friendly adversaries. And what we all want for our clients is resolution. And look, if I bring a case that's high exposure and it looks like it's a 240 case with bad injuries, Michael knows me and he knows, you know, what type of cases are. And he'll say, listen, you got a big case, but look, you know, you've got some problems because here, here's what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. Let's see where we go. And I'm going to have to make a motion. Uh, and I think I have a good shot, but let's see where it happens. So, you know, you're able to, it's important. I really feel and why I like having uh, lawyers on the round table because it's important to get off on the right foot in any case and, um, and help each other get to a resolution. And if you win, you win, if you lose, you lose, but you both do a good job, make, try and make each other look good to your clients. Uh, Um, And you can do that uh, and get it to a a resolution that everybody can live with. So in a construction accident case, when I take on the case, usually it's the accident's over. um, The scene isn't the same. uh, They're in the hospital. uh, It could be days or weeks or more uh, since the accident. So uh, as far as investigation, it, it can be a little bit tricky. So what we do to investigate is we immediately get our investigators to try and pull permits. We want to identify. We want to identify who's the owner on the site, who's the GC. Uh, we want to find out if a workers' compensation file has started, get the incident report. You want to find out who the players are right off the bat and then what the investigation shows. Then you try and get photographs if you can get on the site, which is hard to do. Um, So what I'd like to kick it off with, Michael, is as a defense attorney, when do you normally get the call uh, that 
there's been a bad accident on our site and there's a chance we're going to get sued. And also, Rosa, you can jump in after Michael on this. You know, when do you get the call of some saying, do we have coverage for this? You know, what do we do? How do we handle it? And one of the disadvantages I feel like I'm at as a plaintiff's lawyer is, you know, someone like Michael who gets a call from a big shot at a big construction firm and saying, we just had a big accident get your ass over here. Michael probably has a hard hat somewhere in his arsenal. And um, and he gets over to the site and he speaks to people. He gets his investigators going. He gets uh, photographs. He tells them what he needs, what to do. So there's an advantage, I think. But Michael, can you tell me how it works on your side? And then Rosa, we can, we can jump over to you or feel free to jump in. Sure. Um, if we're lucky enough to have a repeat client who we have a relationship with and who they call, and get us on the panel for the insurance company or we're already on the panel, then it's great. We can get in there day one. Unfortunately, what often happens is we, we are not contacted immediately. Sometimes we're contacted as late as the summons and complaint is filed and it gets sent over to the insurer, we're hired, and then we're doing what you're doing, which is trying to recreate a scene months or years later. And that's always infuriating and it's almost impossible. Um, if we can get in there day one, yeah, that's great because we can have boots on the ground. We, we will go to the site. We will bring the right investigators to document and preserve. That's what you always want to do as a defense attorney. You want to document and preserve. And if there's an opportunity to invite an adversary or somebody is represented and you find out, like in a death case where there's an estate and there's a letter to your client, you know, you preserve and you have a joint inspection. That's, that's the best of all worlds for everyone. But unfortunately, it doesn't always happen. And these jobs are usually major jobs. There's major players involved. There's your owner. There's a construction manager. There's a GC. There's a variety of subs. You know, there's site safety guys and, and, and competent people and all sorts of terms and titles. And, and to get the right information is often hard. You would be surprised how many jobs like this, despite the fact that OSHA should be called when there's a serious accident, sometimes they're not. So sometimes there's not even that ability to eventually get the OSHA records and find out what the initial investigation that they, um, that they obtained shows. And sometimes they black out half of the report and, and you know, you're trying to put pieces back together. So yes, when we get called from day one from the client or the insured, that's great. Sometimes the insurer is astute enough to call us day one. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they might not recognize their, their role in it. If it's a sub, they might not think this is, you know, it's not my case or someone's not treating it as an excess case. So there's so many variables there. Earlier is better. And if not, you're putting the pieces back together and trying to do what you as a plaintiff is trying to do, you know, after the fact and get as much information as you can. Um, and there's a lot of different sources that we could talk about, but I don't want to say more than that. I'll take too much time. Great. Thanks, Michael. And Rosa, um, I would imagine from an insurance perspective that, you know, I'm not involved in these discussions as a plaintiff's lawyer, but I would imagine uh, for all the companies at the construction site right away, they're like, uh, who's covering this? Who's paying for lawyers? What's the coverage? Are there disclaimers? So exactly. can you shed light on like how early in the process that happens and what's going on and, and what, what is an attorney do you zoom in on? Well, you know, just like Michael, uh, same thing happens with coverage. If if companies were proactive in taking care of their insurance issues beforehand from inception, and I have a lot of clients that I do that for, that we review their policies, we go over the, the actual 
terms of the policies, their subcontractors, we look at the policies, we make sure everything's covered. That's great, but that rarely happens. So usually I'm getting the case when there's a summons and complaint filed and they're trying to figure out who's covered under what policy. Um, you know, oftentimes, you know, the carriers will get a call from an insured who is a construction company or an owner or a subcontractor saying, hey, a guy had an accident. But again, there, there's notification. The insurance company starts to do their investigation right away. And sometimes we'll get the coverage piece at that point in terms of is there coverage or not coverage. With construction accident cases, it seems that the majority of the time, the issues involve the tenders of defense. So in other words, it's a risk transfer situation and everybody's vying for position. And they, they you know, the, the owner, as you said, the owner and the, the general contractor get sued and then they, you know, tender over to the subcontractor and then there the fight begins. Who owes the coverage? Who owes defense? Who owes indemnification? Are the proper contracts in place, as you said? Do they have the proper indemnification agreement? So again, as you said, we, we usually get in unfortunately late in the game. Um, but, um, and by that time we're trying to recover from what has already occurred and, and in, in the sense of bad contracts and um, you know, poor insurance. Why, you know, what's amazing to me, we've all been doing this for 20, 30 years. Construction accidents are always happening. They always will happen. Uh, and even with big name companies and subs and all of this, why is there always seem to be a problem? Why can't there be some, some brilliant minds that come together with, uh, you know, some type of contract that works that there's, it, it's so frustrating and maddening to me as a plaintiff's lawyer when I think I've got a great case and everyone says, oh yeah, you got a good case. It's definitely a case, definitely big injuries, but you know, we got coverage problems here and we're, we got to sort this out and, and, have you filed a DJ action? No. Why not? What's going on? What's the problem? And it's maddening. Why do you think these companies can't get it right after the first time and well, that we still run into this? If I if I could say one thing, I think that at least in my, my business and my practice, I'm finding that the bulk of my work is actually construction litigation insurance. And that is and I think it's partially because several years ago, New York State opened up the market to non-licensed insurers. So what that meant is that a lot of contractors got um, premium reductions by, the, by using those companies and, and those policies. On the flip side, there are endorsements and exclusions and provisions that we're, we're, we are different than what we knew and loved under the normal CGL policy. So there are exclusions in some of these policies. I'm going to give you an example. There's exclusions that we're seeing out there that are what I call the employee of, the employee of anyone exclusion. Yep, I've been so, seeing a lot of that lately. Okay, so if any employee of any trade or independent contractor is injured, the person holding this policy with this endorsement, it could be an owner, it could be a GC, will not get insurance. So it, it, it seems ridiculous to me that that even exists, but it does exist. Um, I think a lot of times the contractors, the companies are not even aware that they're getting these endorsements in their policies. And when they find out they're furious, but it's too late. Um, and so I'm seeing that over and over and over again. I think the other the other issue is I, I recently wrote an article that was um, published in Primaris called The End of the Handshake. And it was a play on COVID and construction contracts. But the 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 issue in that that what I brought up is you have to have a written contract executed by both sides prior to starting the work. 
And with that in place, a lot of risk transfer can occur and it needs to have a proper indemnification agreement and a proper insurance procurement clause. And, you know, a lot of the bigger companies get it. They have the standard AIA, you know, forms and they they have the, the endorsements. But I, I think that part of the problem is they're not confirming coverage. So you know, everyone gets these certificates of insurance. I'm sure you see them on every single construction case that you have. They're meaningless in New York. And so what I counsel my clients who are companies, I tell them, you not only need to get a copy of that certificate of insurance, you need the actual policy itself and review and make sure that that subcontractor, whoever it is, is getting a policy that's actually going to provide you with the coverage that you need. That's a really good point. And uh, what I, the practice in our firm is in any case, um, get the insurance policies of the defendants. Uh, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, uh, obviously, if you're a defense attorney, you're going to want to see all the policies and you probably do all the time. You're more used to that. Plaintiff's lawyers don't necessarily feel as comfortable looking at policies. And I think it's really important if you are a plaintiff's attorney that you start to get more comfortable with it. And don't you have the right in state court and federal court to get the full insurance policy applicable to the claims that you're bringing against the parties and the defendants. So when you get that boilerplate response that I'm sure every defense firm sends, and I would probably send it too if I was a defense firm, the first thing they're going to do in response to your demand for insurance, even your demand where you ask for all policies, is give you the name of the company, the policy number, and the coverage limit, right? That's what we always see in the responses. And from the defense attorney side, I can let you both speak to it. They figure that's all you care. You want to make sure there's coverage and you want to know how much. And most plaintiff's lawyers stop there. But in a construction accident case, in a high stakes case, bigger injuries, you want to see the policy. You want to read through it all yourself. You want to see, you want to, like I said, roll up your sleeves, get in the mix, find out, you know, who you believe is the proper party to cover this and start. I work the phones. I'll call up and say, Mike, I'm looking through all these policies. You know, I think you are you. you I don't think it's your guy. Uh, I think you can get out based on my read. What's your take on it? And then Mike might say, yeah, we're looking at it. And then I'll say, well, are you going to file a DJ action? Are you going to move on this? And that's when things usually slow down when I speak to my adversaries. Because like, well, I got to check with the carrier. That's starting another action. Do they want to do it? And that gets really frustrating because I've had a lot of cases uh, get resolution held up because no one's made a move. Um, and for some reason, there's it's stagnant. No one's made moves as far as uh, determination and coverage. A DJ is a declaratory action that one party can bring against another, and uh, it's important to do that. So, um, jump in and say, yeah. the other thing that's overlooked frequently is the umbrella policy, the excess policy. Everybody looks to the primary policy and not the umbrella policy. And the honest truth is, with the value of these construction action cases these days, generally the CGL policies are only a million or of 2 million, you see it. And the umbrellas are larger, you know, they're 3 million or 4 million or 5 million. And, you know, with the value of these cases these days, you really need to ask for both. And I find sometimes I'll look back at cases and no one's asked for the umbrella policy on any of the subs. And, you know, that's unacceptable. You should be looking at full at the full picture of coverage. Yeah. And uh, there's just a question in the chat. A DJ action stands for declaratory judgment. Uh, in the law, it's a great method where you can file basically a motion or start its own action uh, to uh, have the court declare something. 
So sometimes I'll have a situation where there's a disclaimer, but instead of the insurance company resting on the letter they send, they want to make sure that it doesn't come back to bite them. And they want a rubber stamp, a court order saying, yeah, it's a valid disclaimer. They will proactively file a declaratory judgment action to get a declaration in essence. So that's what those are. Michael, you want to touch on this before I shift gears to the next sure, topic? Very, very briefly. And sure. Good point about the DJ action. So we as a defense firm, although we do coverage, we can never do the same on the same case, right? So if I'm defense attorney for HRH construction or, or Tishman or whoever it is, a GC or sub, it doesn't matter. And I've been hired by an insurer to do that. I can't also be a person bringing a DJ action generally, right, on the same case. And we would be generally contracted, uh, conflicted out of it because we do so much work with different insurers and another client of the firm would not take lightly to my firm suing them on behalf of a different insurer to get a declination of the rights. And so we don't do that and we don't get involved in making those recommendations because it could interfere with coverage and we're not ethically permitted to do that. We want to increase coverage for our client, never decrease it. Sometimes bringing a DJ action could actually leave your client, the insured of some insurer, without coverage. So we don't touch that with a 10-foot pole when we're defense counsel, typically, right? There are exceptions to every one of these rules, but that, and that's what happens. And so sometimes you'll call and say, Michael, I'm looking through these policies, you know, what's going on? And I might say to you, Andrew, can I have a copy of those policies? Because you think that the person that hired me sent me all of the policies, but they might not have, right? Or I might not have all of them. I agree with you, they're all important. And they're all important to look at because sometimes there's competing clauses in them and case law that dictates um, you know, how they work. What's the other insurance clause say? Who comes first? Where's the priority of coverage? And often as a trial attorney, I see that those issues are not really resolved until very close to trial or while I'm on trial. And somebody's hiring DJ counsel who wants a copy of your file. You have to be careful what you can share and what you can't share. And so, yeah, in big cases, it's very important. But we as defense counsel don't always have those answers. And it's up to the insurers if they hired coverage counsel or not. And, what, and how proactive they've been in the cases. So the bigger the case, the more important it becomes, the more layers of insurance, the more priority of coverage, all of those things. Towers of, you know, all of these buzzwords, yes, it's important, and defense attorneys get hives even speaking of these things and wanting to read them, but you're right. You do need to be at least familiar with them and get into some of these issues so you're aware of what's going on around you. Very important. Is there any... Any tool at a plaintiff's counsel's disposal to try and lock down or sort out these coverage issues if I feel if I've got a multi-party uh, construction accident case and everyone's saying it's not ours, it's theirs, and we're, we're dealing with it on our end, and you raise a good point that it would be a conflict, I would generally think, well, why wouldn't Mike make a motion for a DJ action in his case? And now understand why there's delays because you you can, it's conflicting. So the carrier needs to get another firm and it just drags out. So the best way I can think of equating this when I talk about anything a plaintiff's lawyer could do is we utilize the bad faith letter. Um, and for those who are not familiar with that, if you're involved in a case and you believe that the, based on the facts and liability that you've developed in the case, it's worth more than the insurance coverage that's been uh, disclosed to you, you can send a bad faith letter saying that their carrier's in bad faith. 
then ultimately, if you can prove it and prove a bad faith case, which is a whole, it's not an easy thing, but ultimately, if you can prove it, then the insurance company could be obligated to pay any judgment in excess of the policy. They can't sit back and say, oh, I have a million dollar policy. I don't care if you get a $10 million verdict. We only end for a million dollars. Well, that's not true if they're in bad faith. And when we send the bad faith letter, we say, and by the way, notify your insured that we'll take your policy and the case is done and they're off the hook uh, and your failure to do so puts you on the hook. So that often stirs up some settlement, gets some things going, discussions. Is there any equivalent of that um, that either of you know that I as a plaintiff's attorney could use if I feel like I'm just like hanging out there I've got a good case. We've done depositions. We've done discovery. We want to settle it. But everyone's saying, listen, we all agree the case is worth X dollars, but we have a big disagreement on who's going to be paying for it. What what do we do? What do you guys suggest? It's a very difficult situation to be in because you as a plaintiff don't have a right to commence a declaratory judgment action against the insurer for one of the subs or a contractor until you have a judgment that remains unsatisfied. There's a, there is a, an, a small exception to that with late notice, but um, other than that, you don't have the right in New York, an independent right. So there is really very little that you can do. And some I find that some of my carrier clients are very um, proactive in filing DJ actions, and I file, find that others are not. Um, it just depends on which carrier it is. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, I think, you know, there's really not much, unfortunately, that you can do to, to move that part of the case. Okay. Um, Rosa, correct me, uh, not to belabor this point, but Rosa, correct me if I'm wrong. In New York, the other impediment to it is that if you bring the DJ action and you're wrong, you might have to pay the adverse fees. Whereas if you sit there, and wait for the insured to sue you because of the English versus the American rule, where in our country you don't get legal fees. You sit there, and if you're wrong as the insurer, but you've been sued by the insured, you know, even if you're wrong, you don't have to pay the legal fees. Whereas if you, as the insurer, bring the lawsuit and you're wrong, you might have to pay the legal fees. Am I correct about that? That is, that's correct. Um, I have seen um, recently where they have the actual insured bring the DJ. Um, and the carrier pays for the defense for the counsel to bring the DJ in the name of the um, the company. I don't know if ultimately that would, you know, that would implicate the, the that that law that says that if you put your insured in a defensive posture, you have to pay their legal and you lose. You have to pay their legal fees. So, but you're right. That is one of the big uh, barriers to the DJ actions. All right, I'm going to switch topics now. We're about halfway through the program. There's still a lot more I want to get to. And what I'd like to talk about now is um, common mistakes. Uh, we'll start with you, Michael, that you see that plaintiff's lawyers make in what would otherwise be considered a, a good plaintiff's labor law construction accident. And by common mistakes, um, you know, I, I mentor and consult a lot of attorneys in our field and uh, construction accident cases happen to be uh, one of the types of cases that I get a lot of questions on that med mal, that type of stuff, product liability. And they're always asking, is this a 240 case? Should I, when should I be making a motion? Um, 
how do I determine the value? Um, who's really liable? When should I settle? How come they're not offering money? Do I settle before mediation, uh, uh, before I file a summary judgment motion? Um, so I try and guide everyone accordingly. Uh, but I'm curious from your perspective, uh, because interestingly, I think, Michael, you and Rosa see a lot more plain, what plaintiffs do than I do. Even though I'm a plaintiff, you know, I work with defense lawyers all the time on my cases, but you're seeing various different plaintiffs. So can you tell us, we'll start with you, Mike, then we'll go to Rosa, sort of what the biggest mistakes you do and you scratch your head and you're like, you know, what's this lawyer doing? Or, you know, they're, you know, I'm not saying anything, but fill in the blank. Um, that you could share with uh, people tuning into this roundtable that they could maybe really learn from and make sure they don't make that mistake. And conversely, other than mistakes, what do you see is really a smart thing uh, that plaintiffs do uh, to move a case or get a good result for their plaintiff in a, in a big construction accident case? Okay. Uh, trying to keep it very brief. Um, what I see is some of the biggest mistakes is that my adversaries will fall in love with the case. There's a fall from a height and therefore it's 240 and it's strict liability and I'm going to get paid. And they might ignore the fact that there is still a requirement under that statute that there be a proximate cause finding. They've changed those buzzwords for the jurors because they didn't understand what it meant no matter how many times they defined it and call it a substantial factor. So, it, it, you know, Yes, you might have statutory liability against an owner or a GC. You're going to look for who's actively negligent. You're going to try to figure out what happened and was it causally connected to some problem. And then you have to look at, you know, every fall from a ladder or from a scaffold is not a 240 case. Every time something falls from a height, it's not a 240 case. Why not? Because it has to be, you have to give proper protection to the worker. The worker is the is sacrosanct in, in New York law, no matter what they do. They could show up to, to, to work drunk, okay? They could show up to work without their hard hand. But if you don't give them the proper protection, if you don't give them the proper ladder, the proper scaffold, let's assume the proper ladder was given, but it was not employed in a proper way by the worker. You have to investigate that. So I, I think the adversaries sometimes gloss over these strict liability statutes and just fall in love with the facts and say, you know, I have 10 fusions, and have a fall from a height, you're going to pay me. But then they, they might not look at who has to pay. They might not look at the proximate cause. They might not look at the safety devices that were given, the warnings that were given. You touched on sole proximate cause earlier. There's only really two defenses to 240. One is sole proximate cause, and the other is recalcitrant worker. That assumes, too, Andrew, that they've triggered one of the seven enumerated activities. Not every activity is, is construction covered under that 240 statute, right? It's, it's got to be erection, demolition, you know, uh, pointing, painting. There's certain, there's seven enumerated things. I have my own acronym, REDCAP, that I made to, to remind myself. But, you know, first of all, did you trigger the statute? Second Wait, of all, I want to hear what that acronym is. It's, it's REDCAP, but now you're going to put me on the spot. I think it's, Let's hear it, because everyone uh, gets yeah, Because okay. uh, now prepare, we'll know. Prepare, we'll know. Prepare, and just don't use it against me in front of a judge. Okay. Erection, demolition, um, construction, alteration, pointing, painting. There you go. Nice. I think I got it right. If I didn't, Red cap. You heard I'll it here on the roundtable, everyone. If you want a 240 case, better fall within the red cap. All right. <laughs> All right. So, you know, does it trigger the statute? And then on 241.6, let's assume it's not a fall from a height because, you know, those are few and far between in the big picture of construction accidents. 
241.6 allows for comparative negligence as compared to 240. But you have to trigger a specific, not a general, a specific violation of NYCRR, the administrative code. You know, there's got to be some specific thing you're triggering. Plaintiff's attorneys gloss over that. They give a BP that mentions things that don't apply, right? You need to know what was violated, what was it, what applies, what's specific enough. You need to trigger it. If you don't trigger it, you're not going to get the liability that you're entitled to theoretically. And so then you see, uh, Michael, do you see plaintiff's lawyers saying, oh, I've got a 241.6 case and they're not able to point you, point out a specific uh, concrete provision of the industrial code and administrative code? Yeah, all the time. We okay. see it all the time. I just want to give a practical tip on that. For those of you who don't know, the administrative code, I believe, codifies what's known as the industrial code colloquially. And the industrial code, you can actually download it if you Google it. And I recommend you do it as a PDF. And it has all the codes, all the, you know, blasting, you know, rigging, uh, everything in there and all these subdivisions on what should be done in a safe workplace. So you should keep it on your computer. When you get that case in, type in, you know, felon hole or hole, you know, and search that PDF and find anything that comes up within that, that addresses it, that may apply to your case. Then you have to go one step further under the law and show that it's a concrete provision, which means there are some parts of the code that say, must keep a safe workplace, must keep a clear workplace. When they're broad like that, they're not considered concrete and you can't survive a 241.6. So I just want to give that background for, you know, we throw around a lot of terminology, 241.6, uh, industrial code, administrative code, concrete provisions. Um, so continue on, Michael. And then, and then you have your section 200, which as you said earlier, is a codification of the common law statute you know, uh, duty, breach, proximate cause, damages, right? But in Section 200, they look for control. Did the GC or the sub have control? The indicia of control becomes really important for that. So sometimes you make a motion for summary judgment and you win one of these and not another. If, you, if you're unlucky enough as a defendant to lose 240, the others don't even matter. And you guys sometimes just move on 240. But that's a mistake too. Common mistake of a plaintiff's attorney, they just move on 240. They don't move on 241 or 200. If they lose on 240, did they have a 241.6? Was it there? Was it not there? You know, you, you don't get two shots at that apple. I mean, these summary judgment motions, there's more of them made in labor law cases, but there's more appellate division decisions on labor law than any other area of the law, of the law in New York, because it's so fact specific, it's so different, and the law is always evolving. So if you start reading those, it's amazing the dichotomy in the decisions and even between the first and second department, let alone third and fourth. So oh, yeah. sometimes you go to the court of appeals and they don't always resolve it. You know, um, on sole proximate cause, I had one at the court of appeals. We're going to end up having to try the case. We won the first department on sole proximate cause. They, they hate that notion ever since the Blake case. They don't really like it. Um, they look to find anything that is not that. And now we have an issue of fact on the sole proximate cause case out of the court of appeals which is used, it's called Biaconetto. It's been used by other appellate divisions recently about issues of fact. You know, they're, they're tough motions, let's put it that way. And now with the new motion rules, they're even gonna to become tougher. Uh, for by the way, if, if you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you're going to trial on an issue of fact for sole proximate cause, 
that's not good. It's not good for anybody to be in that situation because it's a, it's a crapshoot as far as I'm concerned. Um, Rosa, do you commonly see anything that either a plaintiff lawyer or a defense lawyer uh, does that's a good idea or a bad idea, uh, just as a practice tip to those of us uh, tuning in today? Well, just a quick on the coverage piece of it, and you mentioned this earlier, is when the plaintiff's attorneys just sit back and say, I don't care. I've heard them say, I don't care. I have you know, an owner. They own a building. Well, I don't know, you know who wants to go through a trial, get a judgment, file a lien, and then, and then you know, chase a lien and you know, 10 years down the road, maybe get paid. So I, I think it's smart when they get involved with the coverage piece and, and become knowledgeable of it. Um, and so that they can, you know, they can input on the cases as well and get the thing moving and, you know, put some pressure behind the resolving of the coverage part of it. Switching uh, gears just a little bit, talking about, uh, since we were talking about summary judgment motion, um, thoughts from either of you on whether or not you think a carrier would seriously consider uh, true value settlement uh, pre summary judgment motion being made either by the plaintiff or by defense? Uh, or uh, do you normally see in practice in a construction accident case relating to 240 subdivision one or 241 subdivision six that there's got to be some motion practice before you can talk real settlement? I think that a lot of the carriers rely on the percentages of you know win versus loss that they ask us for. They're always asking us, do you think you're going to win this motion? If you win it, if you make it, you're going to win it. Now, that's very hard. It's not an exact science. It depends on the judge and the day of the week, as you know, and of course, the facts of the case and the law. But you can get such inconsistent decisions on this, and it's hard to nail down, you know, 30% versus 40. Nobody wants to hear 50-50, right? If you're giving a carrier a 50-50 shot on something, you're, you're punting it. You don't know what's going to happen. So they're looking for us to tell them it's 80-20, 70-30. And, and they're doing math formulas and actuary science in the background and not always sharing those results with us, you know, about what they'll pay depending on those numbers that we give them and the chance of success and who the adversary is and, the who, and where the venue is. I mean, they have all of these actuarial issues these days that they try to really evaluate. It's very hard um, to get it right. So, you know, I don't, there's no cookie cutter method. I don't think anyone should think that there is. Carrier to carrier, it's different. Venue to venue, depending on your adversary and how reasonable you are. And, you know, Andrew, going like to mix this back with your other question, you can, as a plaintiff's attorney, go out and pay for a coverage attorney to evaluate all the, um, all the policies and to give an opinion in writing if they're willing to put it. If they're a good coverage attorney, they probably would, would do it about the priorities of coverage and come to the defense counsel. We would have to share that information with our clients and with the insurers that were paying us. And, and maybe then that would, that would jumpstart, you know, some of the carriers hiring coverage counsel to look into it. Is this person right? Are they not right? Because that really helps if you could do it earlier in the case than when you're on the eve of trial and, you know, you're trying the case day to day. You don't have time to deal with those issues or answer all of those questions. And, and they do it to us all the time because people wake up too late sometimes. So it's, it's kind of like everyone's pointing at everyone else and everyone's thinking it's going to be everyone else's problem. But the sooner you know whose problem it is, the more intelligent the decision you can make is. That's a great idea. So let me ask you this. If I'm in a situation and I have multiple defendants and there's coverage disputes in a construction accident case, I call up Rosa because she's my go-to. I say, Rosa, I got a really good case, but I can't move it. 
there's a coverage issue. Rosa, can I give you all of the policies? I'll get them all. I want you to review it and write an opinion letter. Rosa says, of course, I'd be happy to do it. She writes me a thoughtful opinion letter on priority of coverage and all of that. Then when I get that letter, do you feel it would be appropriate and received well if I send that to you, Mike, and to counsel for the other parties and say, hey, folks, my understanding is there may be some issues of coverage. Um, we've independently retained coverage counsel who's rendered this opinion. For your reference, I'm happy to enclose it. How would that be received? I think appropriate, yes. Received is going to depend on whether I'm the target or not. I'm <laughs> kidding, right? So, you know, yeah, I, I don't see any any reason to wait on these things as long as everyone does because we're all cer- – it's the white elephant in the room, right? We're all circling around these issues and we can't drill down and figure them out often because we're not evaluating the policies as defense counsel. We're not necessarily doing that. We're not paid to do it. You know, we, we, we shouldn't always be doing it. It depends. Sometimes we should do it, right? Sometimes we have to get involved. If I'm excess counsel, I'm looking at it. Or if someone's looking over my shoulder, they're looking at it. They need to know. Different layers of insurance. We need to know who's coming next. It's pretty important. Um, but yeah, everyone waits too long and there's a lot, like Rosa said, there's a lot of competing interests and some carriers are prone to do it, some aren't. There's, you know, there's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. I don't have all those answers, but yes, I think it's appropriate. I think it would be well received because it's information that we could hand off to someone else and get an evaluation on and it would help us to crystallize and clarify the issues. Before a judge is ruling on them, you know, and it hurts you or me right? At trial, when, when, when we're getting bad rulings all of a sudden, we didn't have time to think about it. And then we're at the appellate division. Of course, everyone more money. So Rosa, you and I are going to have some uh, more work to do, I think. Because uh, look, as I always say in my CLEs and lectures and podcasts, um, I certainly don't know everything. I know what I know, and I pretty much know what I don't know. And there's a lot that I don't know. And as lawyers, I think we are always learning. Uh, I'm sure Mike and Rosa will agree with me. We are always studying, we're reading, we're learning. There's so much. And that's part of what's cool about what we do is it's not the same thing day in and day out. And so I've just learned, uh, thank you, Michael, a suggestion, and I'll do that from now. And if I start to sniff out that there could be a coverage issue, Rosa's going to get involved and we're going to at least feel like we're doing something. That's the worst when you feel like you're, you can't do anything to, to move your case as a plaintiff's lawyer. I, I think um, one of the things that you can also do is that you can push for the the contracts and push for the policies because I find, I mean, I know I have a case right now that the case summary judgment's been decided and all of a sudden one of the subs comes up with a, a contract. I mean, you know, it, not all companies are a Tishman, you know, there's little guys out there and and they're, you know, they, they have these, you know, the sister who's the bookkeeper, you know, so it's important to push to people for their files, you know, yes. and to get their contracts because that's going to, you know, make or break whether or not there's coverage in some instances. If it's an employer, um, you can only bring them in if there's a signed contract or it's a grave injury. So, you know, that's important to get. So a question that just popped up, um, if when you send that letter, do you send a proposed settlement demand? Um, I would not suggest doing that. You got to keep them separate. You got to talk about coverage, let everybody sort out coverage because you, you want your settlement demand in any case, construction accident case or otherwise, to be received appropriately. 
I generally, I know in other jurisdictions, it's a very big thing to do like a formal settlement letter. I don't know, Rosa and Michael, if you see those a lot, um, they spell out the reasons why they're entitled to this money as a plaintiff's lawyer, and they do that. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I generally like to give a settlement demand to you know a lawyer in an email or a phone call, uh, but not put it out there for everybody and be locked into it. I usually like to deliver demands, couching it, and however I want to couch my demand. And by couching, I mean, listen, this is the number we really think it's worth. Or look, I'll work with you. This is the demand. This is the official demand. Put this on your file. Um, we could have a whole conversation about that, but we've got about 10 minutes left. And what I want to switch to talk about now um, is experts in a construction accident case. And we know, and a lot of the questions people submitted for this roundtable had to do with the state of the law and why are the appellate decisions so confusing and how do you know, you know, whether it's really a 240 case or whether it's sole proximate cause. And the short answer is you don't know. And it is a crapshoot. You can be in the first department with the same exact fact pattern and a different panel in the first department, and it could go different ways. You just don't know. So then when you get out of different departments, court of appeals, um, you just don't know. There's no certainty. There's a lot of uncertainty. And that's the one thing that you need to be sure of. So like Michael said, don't, if you're a plaintiff, sort of be on your high horse that, oh, I got a 240 case, so I'm going to get it, even if that may be the case, because there's a chance you won't. And if you're on the defense side, don't think, oh, I'm definitely going to get sole proximate cause. This guy, you know, set this whole system up himself. And of course, he's the sole proximate cause because that may not be true. So um, knowing that that's the case, you have to be wary and know that you may win or lose and be smart about trying to still get your case resolved. Don't wait on the appellate decision unless you have to. And if it goes your way, great. You're in a better position than beforehand. But if it doesn't, you're in a worse position. Now, the way I tie that into experts is often a time will come where I will be asked, do I need an expert for this case? Do I need an expert to make out a prima facie 240 subdivision one case or 241 subdivision six case? And if I do, what type of expert do I need? And will I need that expert because I'll need that affidavit uh, to support my summary judgment motion? Now, I'll tell you my practice. My practice is that if it's a big enough case, I'll get an expert because I'd hate to take a chance on not having an expert. And I'll get somebody who, if it's dealing with a lift tipping over, uh, is knowledgeable about those lifts and an expert. If it's somebody who is in site safety, uh, I'll bring them in as an expert. It doesn't hurt, okay? And if you've got a big enough case, spend the money, get an expert and do it right. Now, just because I do it, doesn't mean that it's required. Is it necessary? My belief is that I do not believe it is necessary to have an expert. And there could be an argument made that you don't want to submit an expert in your summary judgment motion papers, because if it goes on appeal or, or the deciding judge may say, well, Smiley threw in this expert who said everything was done right. Mezzacapa put in his op, this expert who everything was done, uh, was done. Well, I say everything was done wrong. Mezzacapa's expert on the defense is everything was done right. And then you have the judge saying, ah, it's a dispute between experts uh, and denies it, right? Ah, you don't want that to happen on a 240 case, okay? You, you, you want to get it granted if you're a plaintiff's lawyer or denied if you're a defense lawyer. So it's tricky. So I'd like to hear from both of you. Um, 
what do you suggest? What do you do? Do you have a practice? Do your carriers generally ask you or have a preference on how to handle experts in construction accident lawsuit cases? So I'll, I'll start. The, okay. The, remember, remember the definition of an expert from law school. Why do you need an expert? An expert is someone that can give you information that is not in the purview of a layperson. So if what you're dealing with is within the purview of a layperson, you do not need an expert. Sometimes, like you said, Andrew, it's a mistake to get one. Sometimes it's a mistake not to get one. There is no cookie cutter rule. As you were talking, my hair was graying even more because these are the things that drive me crazy. When you get a case, you're always evaluating, do I need an expert, do I not? You know, so you look at the, you look at the summons and complaint, you look at the bill of particulars, you look at what the allegations are. Are the allegations that, you know, you didn't give the guy the right ladder? You know, what's the right ladder or the right safety device? And what's the right safety device? And you look at what they've alleged and then you look up the case law on it and you look up the 241.6 violations that have been reported on it. And you see if as a matter of law, the judge is just going to be able to find, yes, there was a violation or no. And then you probably don't need an expert. If it's a close call or it's something that's a little unique or outside the purview of the of the judges, yeah, then you need one. So it's a, it's really a case-by-case basis. And, and sometimes, obviously, if we get in day one to a scene and we want to bring an expert with us to say, hey, do you see any violations? Are there problems with this scaffold? Is it the right height? Do we have the right railings? You know, are there the right number of steps on the ladder? Sure, if you, if you have that opportunity. If not, you could always send the pictures. You could get you know, opinions from experts. It's not like an IME doctor. Once you hire an IME doctor and I examine your client, I have to call that doctor, don't I? If I don't, you're asking for a missing witness charge and you're getting it, right? Not so with, a, with a, an expert, you know, construction manager, um, engineer, if there, or if there are violations of codes and things like that. I don't have to call someone that's given me a negative opinion, do I? No, I don't have to submit an affidavit for them. I could try to go it without it. So it really is a case-by-case basis. There's no easy answer to your question, but those are the, that's, that's the, the litmus test that I go through. Is it within the purview of a layperson or not? Do I need one? Do I want one? Should I consult with one? And consulting engineers are good things, you know. And then state court, as you know, versus federal court, as you know quite well because we've litigated, you don't get to depose the expert. You just get a 3101, you know, and, and you're right, if there's two competing experts on a motion for summary judgment, the judge, unless, unless it's like a fry situation where it's just junk science and they're going to throw one out, or that person is not qualified to make those, those calls, um, you might be setting yourself up for an issue of fact by hiring an expert just to go against someone else because they said X, Y, and Z. If it's, if it's patently false or it's not in the purview of an expert and you don't need to have one. It doesn't bolster your case in front of a good judge who knows this litmus test to have one to say the obvious. You know, it really doesn't. But if there's a close call or there's something that is engineering science and it needs more than just what we could do as lay people, then yeah, you need it. And that and that's really the the analysis, I suppose. I think that's a great analysis, and uh, and I think you're spot on with that, Rosa. I'm going to give you one minute uh, rebuttal, counselor. Yeah, I just, no, I I defer to Michael on this. He's a litigator on that end of it. But I do, you know, the one thing I will say is that even if you get the expert and you can confer with the expert without disclosing who the expert is, 
and you need to have them ready because if you're going to need them for trial, you're going to have to disclose them. What is it? 30 days before. So you, you know, you don't wait till the last minute to get the expert. You got to have them and nobody's going to say when you're going to put them on the stand, if you're going to do that. So. Yeah. And just to follow up on that, uh, a practice tip that I'd like to share with everybody is get an expert. I mean, get one. Uh, in, a, in a serious case, whether you're on the plaintiff side or the defense side, as we're talking about, you don't need to call the expert. You don't need to use the expert. You don't need to um, to uh, use that expert in a summary judgment motion or disclose the expert. But I've had other, um, other uh, CLEs and podcasts on working with experts. And I always say, you always want to get an expert in any significant case on board and early because that expert, they'll give you ideas regarding liability, but they may say, hey, did you know that there's something called toolbox talks? And what is that? Well, that's something when they're at the site, they give them handouts and a lot of that has information. You may want to know if there was a toolbox talk about wearing your harness when you're in a scaffolding. And if you haven't handled this case before uh, or a construction accident case, you may be like, really? There's something called toolbox talks? Yes. And you need to demand toolbox talks uh, and find out about that. So experts can be really good to help you with discovery. They can be your private tutor in the background of what it's really like on a construction site, of who's doing and what, uh, and what questions to ask at your depositions, what documents to request. So the bottom line is get an expert and then, you know, call me Mike and Rosa up when you're ready for summary judgments and we'll workshop it. You know, we'll, we'll talk it out on whether to use them or not. Uh, and, um, and then you go from there. So uh, we are at the hour, believe it or not, time goes fast. I know there are a lot of questions submitted that we were unfortunately unable to get to, um, but this is still a work in progress, the round table. Um, I thank you all for uh, for trying it out and joining us and listening. This is our second episode, the first one. If you haven't listened to it, uh, I had six panelists. So in one hour, we tried to get all seven of us to chat on just various general topics. This is the first round table we're doing specifically on construction accident cases. Uh, we look forward to having more with more more panelists on different topics, uh, please reach out to us, drop it in the Q&A, contact us with any questions. And I thank you for tuning in. And uh, if you haven't listened to the Mentor ESQ podcast and you're attending this live, uh, please check it out. There's lots of great stuff to listen to. And if you are listening to this on the pad podcast, uh, I thank you for joining us and for being a regular subscriber. And uh, as always, please reach out to me with any questions. If you want to talk referrals, we refer cases out. We accept them. And I'm sure Rosa and Michael would also be happy to discuss referrals in their wheelhouse with you. So don't be shy. Feel free to reach out. We're a community here and we should stay engaged. And I know I speak for Rosa and Michael that just to pick our brains anytime, that's what we like to do as experienced lawyers. It betters the profession and the uh, community that we're in. So uh, please share this a link when you get it uh, with your friends, colleagues, and uh, classmates and uh, share the podcast with it. And I thank you all for joining us on this episode of The Roundtable on the Mentor ESQ podcast. Wishing everybody a great rest of the day and uh, rest of this month. <laughs>